Hello, I'm Lynn Scanella and welcome back to Fruitful Conversations, where we chat to people who share their stories and pearls of wisdom so we can learn and grow. This is part two of Arabella Douglas. It can stand alone, but I'm going to suggest you go back and listen to part one. Just a note, um, Arabella often refers to the divine right of kings. Now, this is a political doctrine which says that kings get their authority from God or gods. So basically, they're pretty much above earthly authority. I bet Prince Andrew wishes he was King Charles, hey? And from ancient times, the king or the emperor or whatever, they made up the rules and were all meant to follow. Arabella uses this mainly in the context of society creating expectations and obligations for us. These we feel compelled to meet instead of being part of an integrated ecosystem. In this episode, we learn more about Arabella, what drives her, the work she does, her dreams, her goals and her ambitions, and what makes her tick. It's fascinating stuff. Enjoy Arabella Douglas. Tell me about the organisation that is Curry Country and the Curry Foundation. Well, I think there's two parts to it. One is that when my mother passed, so that's 13 years ago now, um, my mother said to me, oh, can't you just like organise the family? Like, you know, she'd been starting to do historical kind of research and different parts, etc. I wasn't really interested in doing that. You know, I there was a there was a tension between our relationship as well and I resented sort of that being thrust on my plate of responsibilities and I knew it was a big deal. I'd been in native title since in my 20s as an undergrad at UNSW, so I knew about native title. I worked on John Howard's 10-point plan. Um, I'd worked on stolen generations kind of stuff. So, you know, as you're sort of travelling through uni and then you're travelling in your young career, you get involved in different social activi- social justice activities. I think because most of that was in Sydney for me, I knew I wasn't from Sydney. So you never really have that um, – you don't feel intimately connected to be changing things because you're sort of a visitor in a lot of ways. It's just where you're working and what you're doing. I knew about Noel Pearson and saw his rise. I saw other people sort of shaping different things. And one of the things that Noel Pearson would always say is that he's a leader for the Cape. He's not a leader for Australia. Non-Indigenous people make the mistake and think that he's a leader for, for all Aboriginal Australia, but he never makes that mistake. He's very clear that he is he speaks for the Cape and that's all he speaks for. If other people don't understand that, that's their folly. You know, he speaks for a nation, a group, a family, that's it. And then you saw other leaders who are out of country and speaking and informing um, how Aboriginal Australia is shaped. And I think I always thought, well, you know, if you're going to apply your good thinking and – be about it, then the only real way to be about it when you're an Aboriginal person is to be about it from a family position. There's really no other way to be about it. Like I've held very senior roles in Aboriginal affairs stuff mm-hmm. and shaping Aboriginal affairs reforms and um, influencing that position. But that's not the same as building my own nation and building my family. So that takes a bit more thought and this is where curry country yeah, comes exactly. in. Yeah, exactly. So my mother said, why can't I disorganise the family and get everybody organised? Well, 
We're a very big family and it takes a lot of effort, a lot How of time. How many people in the family? Mm, almost 3,000 probably. Yeah, big. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's big. So it's not easy and you've got to really think through. It's not about just organising people. It's where do you want them to go? What do you want? What opportunities do you want to open up to them? How does that happen? What's the best way of doing it? But then I also knew that I had the skills, well, if someone was going to rebuild a nation, I would I would employ me to do it. Why wouldn't I? You know, so for the first few years I just, you know, spent time with cultural anthropologists, historical records, reframing the family, getting the history right, then sharing culture across all of the eight lines because some people were strong in culture, some people weren't, some people knew all the history, some people didn't. Um, again, I'm very lucky because Jane's line is that she was a recorded language speaker in uh, 1970, in 1930. So she was a writer. She taught herself to write. She wrote for Abbo Call and some other um, evangelical magazines, etc. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, I come from a line of a woman who clearly knew that strategic thinking was important, um, articulating who she, were, who she was was fundamental I think that she would be um she I think her I'm living a version of what she would want for us as a family and that's not to say that um I think she was very committed to God I don't think that's that goes without saying but I also know now through thinking and reading more of what she's written I think she understood that things were moving and changing and at the core of it was great value for her culture. You know, I wouldn't know things. You know, I know how to call a husband. I know how to, you know, I had my first period in special spots. There are things that have happened, and luckily because I was raised by my grandmother in my own life, where I'm very glad that that those things occurred. When I was 14, 15 and 16, I probably wasn't confident speaking about them. You're very much pressured into being like everybody else. Of course. Now I find great delight and um, in sharing that with my family. And I find more people in the family who are interested in raising their children in those values and understanding it. So what I've really been responsible for, I think, is organising the family. I'm what's called like a sentinel. So there are guardians who are 65 years and over. I'm a sentinel, so that means I'm between the age of 35 and 65 my job, when you're 35 or less, your job is just to discover yourself. So why people have that wrong as well, like you're not an adult at 18, you're actually not an adult to you about 30. doesn't mean you can't have children and do some adult activities, but the idea is to find yourself, to figure yourself out, not to pressure yourself to be a fully-fledged adult at 21. It's not going to happen. It actually means to find a way that you come alive in the different parts that you do and that you can bring them into service for others, and you eventually that's a, that's a luxury. You know, if we if we all gave ourselves to thirty five to go, it's okay. Everyone else is going to look after the clan, and but you know, once you're thirty five, you're going to have responsibility. But figure yourself out before you get there. It's and a the nice reason, luxury. and the reason that it's not a luxury that most people talk about it is because of the divine right of kings and the labour inducement to believe that you've got to get out and work and do for others and then earn a living and be in a nuclear environment. That is the opposite of the fullness of developing your spiritual and personhood completely. You will only ever be able to develop yourself if you have the time within yourself. 
if you get on the treadmill and you go, and I was on that treadmill, everyone is, you know, you're thinking, I've got yeah. to make money, I've got to do things, etc. If you have a nuclear definition of your responsibilities, so it's a very small group, you, yourself, a partner, you will always have the false belief that that is what you're supposed to do. But at some point in your life, it doesn't matter if you're 25, 35, 45, 55, you will feel isolated and alone and disconnected from your true purpose. So to get there quicker is to follow First Nations principle or communal living or community rearing principles Mm. where, in fact, you allow people to develop and flourish and give back. If you're simply not an adult, you know, at those ages and you don't know yourself, you actually have to have a relationship with yourself. So – I think that, and we encourage that in our family now. So I'm going to be very interested to see how, observing that as I get older, Mm -hmm. how that mantra has impacted people to give them that relief to say, you don't need to know yourself at 25. By about 35, someone might come knocking on your door and go, hey, how how are you going? Like, what, what are you all about? But to allow people the opportunity and the freedom to really... Um, find yourself. Yeah, it's really beautiful. So, you know, you I, I suspect that you've done a lot of finding yourself before you were 35, Arabella, just because of who you are. And now you're, you know, you're a, you're an environmental lawyer, you're a legal strategist, mm-hmm. um, you have curry country, you sit on several boards. Your life is very full. What – tell me now at this stage in your life, what's – you just said you turned 50 this year – Give me a perfect day in the life of Arabella Douglas. What what makes you happy and satisfied in a perfect day? I don't have many um, non-perfect days. Like, again, I pretty much have designed my life deliberately for a long time now. Like, so more than a decade I've been very prescriptive about what is a perfect day, how does satisfaction work for me. A, being able to wake up on country, swim in my ocean, be in my own place at my own rhythm is a luxury. That's one thing. To be able to think and feel and spend time looking at curry country, which is all hard work for me, is a massive luxury. If you were to ask people what would you want to spend your time on, it's their passion parts that they would love to spend more time on. The fact that I've integrated that into my everyday life to make it my reality is actually a luxury. It's, it really is um, a luxurious position. I mean, most people – will have worked hard and you get into this cycle of working hard and working long hours and working for other people. It's absolutely true. You're either working on someone else's dream or you're working on your own. So the the decision for me about working on my own dream was if I'm going to give my best thinking, my best living, my best um, energy to something, then I would be best to do that to my own family, to serve my own family with the best of my abilities. Um, I am an Australian lawyer. I am an economist. So it makes sense to me that I would want to use that good thinking, those good skills that I can sell to market and as I do like and and people pay me to do things, but it would seem useful to me to use those skills to build my own nation. Mm-hmm. Which and is it, what you're doing with exactly. Curry Country. And that is a luxury. Mm. It's like it really is like saying it's like someone who's a cook, you know, and a great chef. To be able to feed the people you love is the pinnacle of that service because it's the best of who you are. Mm. So for me, it seems very sensible to go, well, if it's the best, if my best thinking, if my best energy is to serve my nation, Mm. 
and I don't mean the country as a whole, I mean no, my Bundjalung nation. nation. Yeah. So, it, you know, you're here in my home and me inviting people into our family is a part of that ambition to serve that nation because I want cooperation in my nation. I want all the non-Indigenous people to have such a wonderful feeling about their First Nations understanding, mm-hmm. principles, future and connection. I want them to feel as connected to country as I do. The only way I can do that is giving my best energy in that direction. So this is what we can get from Curry Country. This is what, what are some of have. the experiences that you offer? Well, Curry Country first is a, we've got a charity arm. So Curry Country Social Change is our um, Australian charity, which is dedicated to education and environmental uh, work. Mm-hmm. We've been doing some stuff on the floods because climate crisis is real. Mm-hmm. But the ambition for Curry Country under the environmental education is to actually inform and help everyone who lives on our nation act and behave in a different way in response to climate impact. So the only way you're going to do that and get to that position is to understand First Nations thinking about systems, about how First Nations operate, what makes us so get rid of the divine right of kings and start to believe that you're here as part of an integrated ecosystem. You have a role, you know, it's part of stewardship and it's part of cooperation. Like you're not separate from the environment that you live on. And the way that we do that as a family is we invite people onto country. So we do a number of experiences. We started in 2020 doing women's experiences or women's cruises, which is great. Helping people connect intimately to country is a way for them to potentially give up this notion that they're separate from it Mm -hmm. and actually start to have a genuine relationship with it. Now, some people have said, oh, you know, some people might say, well, um, I want them to have a, I don't want to say it's a religious experience, but I want them to have a spiritual connection to the environment that they live on. That is a huge ask. Like if we were to say to people, oh, we're teaching you about spiritual values, people might go, oh, well, I'm not interested in learning about a new religion. It's not actually a religion. It's really a spiritual connection to the environment that you have a different relationship to it. And it might look like, So we have women's cruises, we have events that we do, we do stuff with amazing chefs and cooks in the region, Um, we uh, have food and a farm and so, you know, like it's it's all about helping people understand what those relationships look like. But I wanted yet to grow a generation of people, so this is our ambition as Curry Country, to grow a generation of people that actually behave and are – are as infatuated and interested in First Nations thinking um, as we are. So now there are two parts to that, and and this was not easy. This was not an easy decision because prior to 2019, we'd really been spending most time on our own family education, empowering our own family. It was when COVID sort of started to happen and people were like, I want to raise non-racist kids, I want to teach them more about the environment, what can I do, et cetera, et cetera. I was resistant to it until my aunt, who's now passed, but said to me, you know, basically told me to get my head out of my ass and sort of said, don't be rude. Like, how do you expect people to move with you if you're not prepared to share with them? So then we, as a family, all met, which we do every year. We have curry convoys and, you know, it's a very cooperative kind of measure. But we were sort of talking about what do we really want to, what, what's our vision for people? And I don't want a vision where First Nations people are behaving in one way and non-Indigenous people are behaving in another. I want to find a position where First Nations thinking and behaviour is strong enough and powerful enough to lead the way that people behave. 
And you have to be open to take people on that journey if you want that change. We're not a big enough group to do it alone. Mm. But I think if you invite people in, I think this area, Byron and Tweed Coast are very unusual people as well. Like we're very, a lot of open-minded, open-hearted people. So we've, we've got that uniqueness on our side, if yeah, you will. people perhaps m- more open to yeah. different ideas. Yeah. But when you talk about Indigenous, Indigenous people leading the way, you know, over the last couple of years we've had increasingly worse and more devastating bushfires and floods. And I know that you were recently involved in a flood report for mm. government. Um, to me it would seem really obvious that Indigenous ways should be leading the way and should have been doing that in planning and prevention for years. Um, in that flood report, I know this is a huge question, but can you give us just a, a, a brief overview of like what did, what did we do wrong and what can we do better? Uh, well, I think one of the simple um, suggestions, I guess, is look, sometimes you do so many things wrong that you then end up in a position of protecting that really bad decision that you've made and you get embedded into believing that it's right and you can't do anything but maintain the position. Balana means belly swell. Bulana is the Aboriginal word. There were never supposed to be people living in Balana. (laughs) First Nations people through the Americas have teepees and they move based on seasons. That's not because they um, are interested in exploring every coastline that they have. It's because they're in tune with how the environment needs to move. So there's something in the Americas called uh, Tornado Alley or Cyclone Alley, I think they call it in the Midwest. All of those lands historically, if you were to ask First Nations people, they would say that's why we don't put any permanent dwellings there. That's not why we – that's why we don't set up homes there. That's why we move out of season. Ballina is the same thing. Um, People weren't permanently there. So – and then you ask, well, well, why did people want to set up there? Well, A, because they – because they believe in the divine right of kings and they think that they're more important than the environment and they're not. They believe that I own that land so therefore I can live there. Well, good luck with that proposition as the comes You guys have never in. thought that way, right? Yeah, because you don't need to. Like I don't, I don't need to try to prove that I'm bigger than the sun because I simply am not. As much as I might like to believe that I'm so important – um, and we are made of stars. We've got 11% the same stardust as stars have, right? So, um, but we're not more powerful than the sun and the moon. I know that's humbling, but it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're insignificant and you're not worthy. Mm. My grandmother used to say as well, you know, you're not as important as the ocean. And we kind of joke in our family because we've got amazing people in the family. Again, very common in Aboriginal families. It's not as though we're uniquely amazing. When people say that someone's amazing, by the way, like they say that they're brilliant, they're fascinating, oh, my God, they're just incredible people, that is just a bullshit excuse to let everybody off the hook because everybody's fucking amazing. <laughs> the only reason you say that, the only reason you think that, and I don't care if you want to be honest with yourself or not or whoever you are, but the only reason you think somebody is more incredible or amazing is because the fear factor within yourself is stopping you from seeing yourself in the same way. We are all amazing. We're all phenomenal. We, we, 
let ourselves, we lie to ourselves by categorising a sect, a, a small group of people as the extraordinary. I've started hashtagging something recently, just stuff quoting, you know, ordinary magic, because I really feel as though we think everything's extraordinary, but we are phenomenally ordinary, but we are all equally brilliant. And I think once you realise that as well, I mean, most big leaders will tell you that. Like everyone who's amazing will say to you, um, I'm not amazing and, you know, everyone can do it and you're the same. That is really legitimately the shit. Like that's absolutely <laughs> it. Like, I think I've heard you say today before we um, before we started. Yeah. And by the way, you're the first person when I've said I'll come and do a podcast and you've said, yes, thank you, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll do that for you. And I've been very appreciative. So I walked in today, ladies and gentlemen, and there was a three-course meal. <laughs> like, yes, I have to come back here every time. Very generous of spirit. But I think in that over lunch, I think I heard you say more than three times, I'm excellent at this. Yeah. I'm amazing at this. I'm good at this. And Arabella, I know it's not said with a huge ego. It's just acceptance. And the more that we can do more of that – the better it is. Was there a defining moment in your life when you went, I can actually do whatever I want? I can. Oh, look, you know? I think there's been so many times, like there's been so many things that um, I've thought, there's no way this is going to be, I can pull this shit off. Like, there's just no way. Like, you know, that's not going to happen. And then I do. I mean, I, you know, I've been to Mary Fairfax's house for dinner. Like, I was probably my teenager. How did you score that? Like these are just the phenomenal things that have happened to me. Eastern but, suburbs, yeah, baby. Yeah. But, but I think you always think that's beyond you. You always think, oh, there's no way that that can happen, you know. I mean, I've been to the Stockholm Royal House for dinner. Like so I lived in uh, um, Valadalen in Sweden as an undergrad when John Howard first took over office. I was depressed. It was the whole thing. I was at university and I was like, you know, the country's gone to Exchange shit. Exchange program or? No, I went over there for a um, a world, uh, First Nations World Conference and delivered a paper on genocide and then I stayed in Sweden and I was really interested in Sweden. It was actually good because prior to that my politics were very black and white, black skin, white skin. So being around Sami people, understanding First Nations people who were blue-eyed and, and white was really great conceptually. Uh, this is brain. in Sweden? Yeah. So really understanding that really gave me a deeper appreciation of First, notion, First Nations and colonial empire building. Because prior to that, I because I am aesthetically black, like so I look like a black person, I operate in the world like a black person, people look at me like a black person. So I'm not a light-skinned, I could just get through. Mm. Um Prior to that, my politics were very much about skin or colorism, what would be known as colorism. So I think it was actually really good because I was in a country where I had to negotiate and think through how colonial empire was operating on white skin people. Prior to that, I would have definitely argued and been the person that said, look, if I had blue eyes and white skin, like I could pretty much put on some car keys and have any job I want. Um, then experiencing that that's not the case for Sami people and seeing the the dynamics of how that operates in Europe and parts of Russia and Norway, et cetera. Oh, that's fascinating. was so fascinating. So it, it took my um, global politics up a level. It, it, it definitely deepened it. I had to do harder thinking and deeper thinking. 
So race analysis comes easily to me. My PhD is in race bias. Have you so finished your PhD? No. I've, God, I haven't hardly done anything on it. I'm probably going to be failing anytime soon. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I always don't want to ask this because of the, uh, the um, intensity of the answer. What is your PhD on? Uh, race bias in investment decision making. So Ooh. it's in behavioural economics. So um, am I nearly finished? No, I'm not. But um, will I get there? Yeah, I will. Because I always do. So I'm an absolute um, finisher. So that's the other thing that's irritating as fuck about my own nature. So I am – some people might say that that's excellent. Um, I can't even – if I start a movie and I'm hating it, I will still have to watch it all the way through. Oh, it's the terrible. life is short though, Arabella. Why would I you know. do that? I know. And I'm trying to – You've got to cut I, the I movie. You've got to cut the bad book. I know. But I just can't but do it. But you've got to finish your PhD, baby. But I can't do it. I just <laughs> find – like literally I find myself frustrated going, I can't believe I'm still watching this. I hate this, but I just have to finish it. Like I don't know what where that comes from. But anyway, I think it's probably some trauma as a child where you're like, okay, you it's just a good have to work ethic. It. That's what it yeah. is. But I think the um, yeah, I think getting back to it, I think the the idea about um, what was the question? Now? I asked about three um, ah. or four, but I would really like to know. Uh, let's give me three key points on what we can do better to ah, plan and yes. prevent flood. Yes. Uh, learn about um, indigenous standpoint theory in environmental care. So. Um, that's right, we were talking about Ballina and where we went wrong. So where we went wrong is ego-led planning previously, this idea that you are more important than everything around you in the environment and you can change the environment. You cannot capture the moon and harness the sun and you're not more important than those things. So when you live in places like Ballina and Lismore that were never really meant to be lived on. That's right. And then, of course, you get into – protecting and defending bad decision-making. So then what happens is people who build those towns go, oh, they insist upon it being there. So any flood that would have happened previously, oh, no, we're just going to rebuild. They refuse to be wrong. And that's all ego. As you know, you know, your executive coaching and all of that, that's where that comes into it, where you go, I'm fundamentally not prepared to give that up because I'm insisting on being right. Mm. Part of understanding being a First Nations person and understanding Aboriginal thinking is that you're not, you don't need to insist upon yourself. There's a freedom, there's a real luxury in letting go. And most surfers and people who love the water will tell you that. At some point, if you're in the middle of the ocean, it doesn't matter if you're surfing, sailing, you realise how small you are mm. and how big the ocean is and you have no control. Two parts will happen. Some people will go into fear and fight and then get nervous and get out and try to pretend that they're more protected in a boat. Other people will give themselves over to just going, um, I'm okay with this feeling. If I could describe Indigenous thinking, it's being okay with knowing that you're going to be okay. What I'm certain about in life at the moment is this. We may kill ourselves as a human species, but the world will go on. The world will recover. As much as we may ruin it, with mining and pollution, et cetera. Um, and there's a really great YouTube video that talks about that, like what will the end of the world look like and then it sort of maps out how it will recover itself. Mm. Every part of the world that human beings have tried to destroy will repair itself. The confidence lies in this. You too are a part of that system. So as much as you might try to harm yourself, you might hurt yourself with alcohol abuse, toxic relationships, fundamentally your DNA is set up to make you thrive and live. It's actually very hard to even take your own life. It's really difficult 
because every part of your fibre of your life, every being, every cell is working into your thriving. So it's very hard to self-destruct. What Indigenous people know, I am inevitable. There's the, the nation that I'm building, by the time I die, which will definitely be over 100, we've established that. <laughs> so I've got, you know, two generations to go, two lots of 25 to go. I definitely will have a great impact on my family that they themselves will feel both inevitable, confident, and if we can take people along in that journey to feel that confidence and acceptance, it makes life a lot easier. I no longer fight against the idea that I need to dominate anything, and that's an ego position as well. You often think I've got to be the best and do this and do that. And then when I do A, B and C and D, all those things will work out and somehow be happy. I find great happiness in knowing that I can surrender. And that's a really powerful psychological position. Like I don't know how else to express that. But How do you do that in, in your work as a, as a CEO, as a, yeah. a board member or a lawyer? Do you surrender to the truth, to the right way of doing things? Because it's not a surrender is, is in like it's a loss. It's maybe surrender to to the truth, is that? I think it's surrender to understanding that you can only, you know, you can, you can tolerate and accept as much as you can. Like it's not, it's not that you need to surrender to only one truth because there's multiple truths, you know. Like you might have a failure now in life where you think if I – you know, I give up this war, I've, you know, give up this fight, I've lost the war. But if you know that there is no end position on that fight, that ultimately, you know, your, your journey is to find peace no matter where anything, is, where anything is, so it could be unresolved, it could be unfinished, that's actually a power position. What, what is the power position in any argument is not to win any argument, to be satisfied with every part of where it's going. Mm. and find find your truth in that. So it feels like flow. Like a lot of people talk about flow. Yep. So sometimes you'll be in an argument and this happens in any negotiation. I recently had something at a board level. There's a particular director and I was um, – I'm getting better at observing other people and trying to work out where their flow is and where that position, where that moderated feeling feels like between – insisting on myself or insisting I want to be right or say something and allowing other people the position for them to say and be. It's a hard one, isn't it? It is. But in fact, you can get better at it and you feel yourself getting better at it. You can get into a position where even if something doesn't go your way, you can test a number of outcomes in your brain and think, well, if it goes in this direction, how do I feel? How do I feel? You will find a position that feels the best. That's flow. The trick is, no matter where you are and what's happening in your world, is to try to find that position of flow so you're satisfied with it, so it doesn't eat you up, so it doesn't keep you up, it doesn't torture you, um, it feels like peace and it feels better. I, you know, I've been on this treadmill of – you know, I must, I must, I must, I must for a long time until I, I think really till my mum passed, I think really it was around that time. So my early 30s, you know, some mid-30s, I think I was 35 when she passed. So where, and I lost a partner as well. So that was another sort of traumatic experience where um, 
I had to just give up anything that I thought was so important to me. So I'm less inclined to be concerned about what other people think about me or their views of me. I'm actually more concerned about what I think of myself and am I at peace with myself and my decision-making? That's the flow question for me. Um, is Does this feel okay even if it doesn't go my way? How does that feel? And sometimes it can be difficult. It's not easy, but it's like any muscle. You know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So the more you practice and go, so if I got this rejection tomorrow, how would that feel? Oh, it feels awful and I just really hate it and I hate that person. Okay, so if I got the rejection and it came back again in two years, how would I feel? well, I really want it now and whatever. What if it came back in three years and it was double what you're expecting now? And all of a sudden you're in flow because you're like, actually, that would be great because I haven't lost anything. Mm. So you can in every challenge trick your mind and it's all ego and the internal discussion into accepting a flow position, even if it's torturous. Okay, so torturous would be, I know that you lost someone you love deeply mm-hmm. in a car accident? No. no, no that was brain, in mm. um, uh, From brain cancer. cancer, right? Mm-hmm. And some, a man that you were, were engaged at spending mm. the rest of your life with. Mm-hmm. How did you switch that one? Because that's a biggie. Uh, when was that, Arabella? How long mm, ago? Well, like 14, 15 years ago. Yeah, so, so around the same time as you yeah. lost your mum. Yeah. Ah, so, so you were, that was a lot going on. Right? Yeah, so you were dealing with a lot of stuff there. There was a lot. A huge growth period, a uh, very difficult period. Uh, I think how I dealt with it, there were two parts. My mode of operating at that point in any sort of response to emotional harm is was always work, busy work do things. Again, that's an element of control so that I feel as though I'm in control even though I'm not in control. Um, I think it was a great loss of all the dreaming that you do for yourself. So that's another great thing about Aboriginal culture. We have a thing called dreaming. I think it's been misarticulated or poorly articulated because the state of dreaming is not just the fantasy. It's to be able to use your consciousness and your subconsciousness in a way that creates your reality. So at that time, my harm was actually all about my disappointment was that I had imagined a life with somebody. I'd imagined, you know, marriage and children and all those fantasies. And you're lost because you haven't spent any time reimagining an alternative. So you're mourning a fantasy in a lot of ways. You know, that's the disappointment. And I'm sure most people would say that losing any partner, it doesn't matter what age, what stage. Um, I know for my stepfather when my mother passed, it was their, you know, retirement, the fantasy of their retirement and their forward years together was a great loss and that's what you mourn. That definitely happened to me and it was difficult because um, I, I hadn't imagined a different alternative for myself. And it became difficult to do that. And then I just didn't imagine partnering with somebody. That part took a really long time to uh, be convinced about. I think that's ordinary and expected as well. But if you're a good dreamer, and I do encourage this all the time, again with a family, daydream more, nightdream more, imagine, fantasise all the time because it's actually the best type of when your brain is engaged. Yes. Your brain is an amazing kind of 
you know, orchestra of, you know, um, syntax and energy and neurons and you can create fantasy all the time. But we don't encourage fantasy enough. We, we don't encourage play enough. No. You know, we're all terribly serious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, busy being professional, which I think a lot of people get confused with yeah. serious. Yeah. And so I absolutely am about the fantasy and the dreaming. So I spend time dreaming and it was only when I started doing – thinking about that, you know, obviously he had brain cancer. So we did a lot of research on brain cancer and all, what that means. And I think it was the beginning of my uh, neurological um, observation in that world about how neurons actually work and how memories work and how you create different neurons and different responses in your brain and how you get over trauma and how you can think your way through cancer. I started to understand how those things happen. So it was that experience going through that journey, learning more about that, that I understood how my brain worked. Then I understood how imagining works and how your brain doesn't, how you can't differentiate between what's real and what's not real. So if you and I imagined right now that we had a volcano outside and we said all the right language and we said all the right things, we would start sweating. We can convince our brain of any reality. That's true. What's fascinating about that is if that's the case, why we don't teach young people to fantasise more. And then, of course, I go back to Aboriginal culture. That's exactly what the dreaming's about. To dream it, like and even my nieces and nephews, and they will attest to this now, so any problem that they've got, and I have lots of people with lots, you know, at uni and doing different things or doing creative stuff and they say, I've got this problem and this is what I'm thinking. I say, well, how, do, how can we dream it? What's the perfect solution? What's your perfect day? You know, what's the perfect way? Start thinking about what it looks like on the other side of that. The more you do that and the more you're really good at it, the easier it is for you to actually live a full life without, without the fear. But that dream tactic has, is not encouraged enough as a way to problem solve from young development into adult development. I'm a huge fan of that. So I often say to people, I'm going to dream a solution. I'm going to think. And I allow my brain to just go into fantasy mode. Yeah, to, it's mm. almost to rest, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's a great, a great thought to have more of that brought into our education system at a young I think age. daydreaming is a great tactic and I think that people need to be encouraged to use – your brain is so amazing. We're not really encouraged to use it effectively. We're not taught how to use it effectively. It's kind of by happen chance we figure out how our brain works and we confuse the spiritual voice with the ego voice and we don't understand how those relationships are working together. I think the more that you can educate people about that, the easier it is. So now I've taken – so even on Twitter I might say um, – I did it the other day. I said, you know, I wake and I imagine a future. This is an ideal day for my whole nation. So this is bigger than just my perfect day. I imagine everyone wakes up. I imagine that everyone goes outside and tends to their garden and tends to food that they're going to eat. Beautiful. I imagine the beginning of the day families and no one's in any cars – all the families are around the garden, in their yards, down the street at communal gardens, harvesting food, getting food, growing food. 
I imagine that people are commenting about the day, feeling the temperature, observing animals, observing insects, and being in a in a you know a six or eight season calendar, which is an Aboriginal calendar about how warmth changes. I I imagine that people are exchanging food for free. No money is transacted or anything like that. There's no external noise, and it's just an abundance, a festival of abundance every day before breakfast. You know, as you're eating breakfast, as you're eating. I then imagine that everyone goes about their day, whatever their their joys, and then meets again in the afternoon at about three o'clock after a lunch of abundance, sharing what's occurred in their day. Then I imagine I imagine people watching sunsets and moonrises as a ritual of community behaviour. So the people could be walking their dogs or exercising, but the idea is you're enjoying something that is without any sort of interference that is universally available. So someone once said to me, well, what would be the capital city of the Bundjalung nation that I'm imagining for my family? And I said, I'm glad you asked that question because I've even thought about that. The capital is the sun. I said, so I'm all about allowing people to honour the sun morning and night and not be in a location to feel that appreciation. And the reason that that's important is because the moment that you say it's a location or it's a place, people then think that's a city or we have to get there, we're excluding, etc. You have to get back to understanding that you're like every tree that does not worry where it's placed, it knows that the sun will touch it at some point. That broadness, like really broad thinking about giving up the goods so that everyone else can enjoy them as much as you is absolutely what I think a perfect life is about. If you can relax people into believing that they are satisfied, food is secure, water is secure, and get them back to fundamentally believing that, that is a powerful community shift. Powerful, really powerful. Imagine if you and I thought we don't need to buy food or buy water, we know it's available. All of a sudden, your bills for the day minimise, your motivation to work is shifted because you're now being taken care of. Imagine if you had just food exchange and water exchange. This is how many, many old tribes lived. I mean, even um, for me, I lived in Tahiti for three years and living there – um, at first it was like, oh, it's really hard to get the Tahitians to work. But the more we lived there, the more we understood that Working they had – It wasn't the issue. They had the ocean. They had mm-hmm. the papaya trees, the coconuts, the fish in the ocean. They had each other. Uh, they did exactly – they de- they lived in this utopia that you describe and life was sweet. And instead we work all our lives to get enough super – to um, suddenly retire, live off a bit of super, and then die. So everything that you're you're saying is um, it's not it's not unachievable, but it really isn't unachievable. Like it genuinely just requires you to shift. A COVID is great in a lot of ways because it's taught everyone to work differently, like and you can operate differently. But you've got to give up the panic that you're missing out, like the great FOMO of missing out because you're not 
I mean, you know, Elon Musk just bought Twitter. The dude's a billionaire, but he's still on Twitter seven hours a day. Dude is not living right. Like he's seriously, like if you're still online for seven hours a day and you'll get the luxury of life ahead of you, there's nothing that you need to be concerned about. Like really, where is that coming from? That's an okay, internal so if, issue. If I'm, if I'm playing devil's advocate, mm. what if that's his joy? That gives him joy being on Twitter. Yeah, is that and his I, thing then? I, I, I mean, actually, I don't get I, it either, but – I, I don't is? look. I don't think it is. But if even if it is, I think it's a superficial um, connection because ultimately it doesn't. The the internal connection is your only role in life. Mm. Like it actually is in other people. As difficult as that is for people to understand, they go, "Well, you know, you need, you know, you do need community, and we we teach each other different things." But the essence of your journey of life is actually to get to know yourself. And the distraction of your engagement on any sort of social media is you in a superficial way, like it might be great to waste some hours and that's what you want to do, but eventually you're avoiding the intimate relationship with yourself. I'm going to go home now and I'm going to water my garden and watch the sunset Mm. and – and take a little rest because you are an exhausting, wonderful bundle of joy. Thank mm-hmm. you, Arabella Douglas. Thank you so much. To me, this episode had many thought-provoking moments. If you think others are amazing and you're not, it's just the fear factor within you stopping you from seeing yourself in the same way. Hmm. Or how when we're faced with terrible grief or something too hard to handle, we turn away and we pretend to work under the pretext of being in control. Thinking about this, to be honest, I think this mainly applies to strong apples who find it more challenging than others to allow themselves to be vulnerable. And her final words about dreaming a solution make me smile. I like this very much. No surprise there. They remind me of the philosophy of the marvellous Mo Fox from Episode 7 in Season 1. Well, I hope that conversation got some neurons firing because it sure did with me. Visit currycountry.com, that's C-U-R-R-I-E, currycountry.com, for all online education and live events, and follow Arabella on Instagram at currycountry. And if you're interested, learn what it means to be an apple or any any other of my ridiculous fruit people over at linscanella.com.au. As always, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for giving up your time and your headspace to join in. Be kind to each other. I'm Lynn Scanella, and this has been Fruitful Conversations. <laughs>